welcome to episode 91 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 8th of June 2020. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelan. Hello. Graham. Hello. And Will. Hello. And here we are. We're finally going to get around to your Ask Us Anything Sensible questions in a bit, but let's start with some news. And there's a new Raspberry Pi model, sort of. The Raspberry Pi 4 8 gigabytes of RAM version has finally materialized. It was in some of their official literature when the Pi 4 launched, so we knew this was coming at some point. But here it is for $75. Haven't you just bought a 4 gigabyte one, Will? And are you pissed off? I have, and I'm not. I mean, for what I need a Pi for, 8 gig is total overkill. I mean, this is borderline desktop PC territory now. Um, so I, I personally don't have a, a use case for something with that much grunt in it. But if you could buy a desktop PC for 75 bucks, that's quite amazing. Anyone else going to get one? I've got two Pi 4s with uh, 4 gig, and I haven't really hit the limits of that, apart from the temperature limits. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> So I don't know. I mean, I guess, I don't know. I suppose it'd be quite good for running lots of stuff out of RAM if you're using it as a home server and run lots of different things at once. But even that seems like a lot. Um, Yeah, I guess desktop is just the ideal thing for it. It seems to me like the bottleneck wasn't the amount of RAM, really. Mm. The bottleneck is the fact that it hasn't got full gigabit Ethernet. It's kind of almost full gigabit. You have to at least start your boot sequence off the SD card You've got USB 3, but it's not full speed. It, it seems like overkill. I do understand why people would want to do it, especially if you're running loads of containers or server stuff, maybe ZFS, that sort of thing. But I think that the 4 gig one will probably still sell reasonably well. But then Eben thought that the 2 gig one would sell loads and they just hardly sold any relative to the 4 gigabyte. I suppose people just want the best that it can be. And it's pretty competitive at that price, $75, about 75 quid with tax and stuff. For something with that much RAM, that is pretty competitive compared to the other boards of its ilk. I'd give six gigs of that memory for two SATA ports. Mm. Yeah. It does seem to appeal to the Raspberry Pi community uh, more so than the larger enthusiasts market, let's say. I think its its primary customers are going to be those people who love Raspberry Pi and everything that they can do with it. Um, most, Like you say, most people will probably be happy with the 4 gig, but let's see. Yeah, I had no desire to go and buy this one because I, I think 4 is enough for what I use it for, and I don't really use it that much anyway. But now is the time for a 64-bit version of Raspberry Pi OS, which is what they're calling it now, instead of Raspbian. There's a beta of it, which is a bit ropey by the sounds of things. I haven't actually tried it because I thought, well, it just doesn't sound like it's ready yet for mainstream. Because the 32-bit version does use PAE, so you can address all 8 gigabytes of RAM with it. But the limit there is, is it 3 gigabytes per file or whatever in RAM? Whereas if you go full 64-bit, then you can have files much bigger than that. 32-bit? What is this? Mid-2000s? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, true, true. I guess if you've got 8 gig of RAM, then these sorts of problems are ones that you consider, but um, it's never really been a problem for the sorts of things that I'm doing. Now, the story that I'd heard was that the 32-bit version was going to be around basically forever because they wanted one single OS to support all the Raspberry Pis. Now, having a 64-bit spin of the same OS isn't really going to cause too much overhead, but it is going to cause a little bit more overhead. 
I wonder if this signals the end of the 32-bit version, albeit a very long, long death. I can't see it somehow because they do have industrial clients using the older models still. And you've got the Zero, which there's no way that's going to be 64-bit capable at that price. And they have said that they are going to continue to do the Zero. I wonder how long they'll be able to get 32-bit CPUs for. Like they, Those chips must have an end-of-life at some point because Broadcom are going to want to sell their new processors. Um, and if Raspberry Pi are the only people buying the old processors, that process is presumably going to get a bit hard. Mm, they do sell a lot of them, though, don't they, the Raspberry Pis? But maybe not enough. Yeah. It'd be interesting if they can start loading the OS into the, the root FS into RAM. That would solve some of the problems that you have with the Pi crashing and then corrupting the SD card, which I still have problems with. I had quite a lot of success netbooting one of mine. It was an old one. It was probably a first or second, um, a Pi 1 or a Pi 2. But yeah, netbooting it worked quite nicely. So give that a go. And I'm sure that the Pi 4 can boot straight off of USB now. Yeah, I'd read that. Yeah, there's a, an experimental firmware that you can flash that will boot from USB now. And you've always been able to have just the uh, the initial stages of the boot on the SD card mm. and then to point at mm. your external SSD or whatever. But now it looks like that is coming, but it's not officially supported yet, I don't think. But come on, the biggest news uh, I broke this week, what, on my blog. I Yes, today everyone learned I have a blog. I occasionally post on it. And that is that Ubuntu 2010, the desktop version, may well get official support from Canonical on the Raspberry Pi. Because you have these server images at the moment. Uh, 20.04 is officially supported and WinPress has been working on his tool called Desktopify, and he did some live streams and stuff for that. But that is a community thing that he's doing in his spare time. But then on the Ubuntu podcast uh, last week, he just dropped this bombshell that they are working on bringing official desktop support for 2010. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, that is that is excellent news. I mean, it all makes sense with 8 gig of RAM now. <laughs> yeah. Is that enough for GNOME, though? <laughs> <laughs> I would be really interested to try it and see how it performs. Well, you can do it now with his tool, but um, it would be good if it was just an official image that you could download directly. It'll be interesting to see how many people choose that over Raspbian, or Raspberry Pi OS, sorry. Um, all the docs that are out there all talk about using Raspbian, Raspberry Pi OS, and uh, it will be interesting to see how many of those people switch to Ubuntu. But yeah, like you say, it's the if it is a, a proper desktop PC, then um, it makes a lot of sense. It'd be very exciting. All right, well, let's move on to Linux Mint and Snaps then. So in the May monthly update, I can only describe it as shots fired, really, <laughs> from Clem. This all comes down to the Chromium Snap, which came about to solve a problem. Chromium is a bastard to package, as you can probably attest, Will, back in your day, mm. especially when you've got multiple versions of Ubuntu to support. And so the solution was to make it a snap. And so if you install the deb of it through apt, then it installs snapd and then installs the snap for you. Well, Mint are not very happy with that. And so they are making it in their upcoming version, Linux Mint 20, that if you try and install Chromium, then you'll just get an error basically explaining the situation to you. And then you'll have to manually install snapd yourself and then install Chromium because they're not going to allow apt to automatically install SnapD because they're very anti-snaps. 
So what you're saying is rather than package chromium in a deb themselves, <laughs> they give you an empty package. Yeah. Great. Cool distro. <laughs> well, yeah, I do understand the point that they're making. It's a little bit um, hyperbole what they say in this. Um, they say about snaps, applications in this store cannot be patched or pinned. You can't audit them, hold them, modify them, or even point snap to a different store. You have as much empowerment with this as if you were using proprietary software, i.e. none. Bollocks. Well, yeah, that is just, it's hyperbole at best, isn't it? Yeah. But the bottom line is this. If you don't like the repos that you're piggybacking off, fucking don't use them. Don't moan about it. Package your own software and stop piggybacking off the hard work of Ubuntu. Or just, you know, make that one package, like one. Well, yeah, <laughs> I suppose. But they're clearly not happy with the direction things are going with Snap. And, well, either base off Debian or fucking mm. build your own packages and host them yourselves. Yeah. And, well... I mean, I'm on the Snap team and I'm employed by Canonical. You monster. <laughs> and, and Mark actually replied to this thread, but I am not an official spokesperson and people who are anti-Snap aren't going to believe what I say anyway. But it was the implication that there's some kind of secret reason for hiding Snap in, in the Chromium Deb that it's just, I don't know, it felt... It, it's it's just simply not the case. It's just it's just the easiest way to to manage the package transition for for the Chromium Deb, which, as Alan Pope wrote in his blog post, was hugely resource intensive. And you know, this is the practical nature of saving loads of time and developers' time, so they can work on other cool stuff. Yeah, and I think that this is part of the the leadership role that Canonical take in Ubuntu by saying this is a priority and this is not a priority. A full-time engineer spending all of their time just trying to get mm. Chromium to build on 1404 or whatever is not a sensible use of time. And so, therefore, we're not going to do it anymore and we're going to use that time somewhere more sensible. Yeah, and as you know, Will, that's exactly what happened. You know, it isn't a yeah. lie. It isn't some made-up story. That's exactly what happened. Ah, uh, you company men are lying because I just did a <laughs> snap search for Chromium and it says publisher Illuminati. So that's <laughs> disproven. <laughs> well, I'm convinced. <laughs> All right, then. But even if they have a point, even if Canonical did something really shit, let's just say, for argument's sake, that this is a shit thing that they're doing. Well, that's the, the breaks that you take when you are in the position that you are piggybacking off or building your distro on Ubuntu. I think generally that it's good to have, when, you, when you're critical of something, it's, it's good to provide an objective, positive outcome for, for the people you're writing for, you know, and, 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 a, and blanking the deb and the messaging is perhaps a bit negative for me. It would have been great if they wanted, well, they're not going to because of the resources it requires, but... They could at least have been a positive outcome for their users rather than just saying, you know, take it to Canonical. And the fact remains that despite the hostility towards Snaps that Mint has, they've got a shitload of their users using Snaps. And so this is, I think it, uh, WinPress described it as uh, hostile to their users as well as hostile to mm. Canonical and Ubuntu or whatever. It, it does seem like a bit of a hostile act when clearly there are Mint users who want to use Snaps. I think this is a really valuable discussion to have. I mean, I, we could talk about it for a lot here, but maybe we should move it to a different section or a different episode because 
you know, this package management problem that we've had for a long, long time with Linux is really interesting. And everyone's trying to come at it from different ways. And they all have their own advantages and disadvantages. And what's surprising still in the Linux community is that it causes so much conflict and negativity. Yeah. All right. Well, staying on the topic of package managers, Microsoft in being shower of bastards shocker. <laughs> they have this new package manager called WinGet. Now, it is remarkably similar to something called AppGet, not to be confused with AppGet, but AppGet, which was a package manager that was available on Windows. Now, the main dev of AppGet was actually approached by Microsoft, I think it was about a year ago, and interviewed with them and was there was talk of him being hired, but he didn't get fully through the process. And then he just stopped hearing from them. And then a day before Winget comes out, they give him the heads up. And then it comes out and he checks it out. Hang on, this is almost exactly like my package manager. And so he's just stopped development of it. And um, Microsoft didn't really acknowledge it for a day or two, I don't think. And then they said that uh, AppGet really helped us out. <laughs> <laughs> so, fail him, no doubt this uh, confirmed your bias, eh? Oh, I, don't, I don't think it needed any confirming, but yeah, it just uh, <laughs> it might help other people who are living in cloud cuckoo land to uh, maybe see the fucking light here. Microsoft and being themselves, shocker. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, one bit of Microsoft being bastards. How convenient for them to have all these bits that can go off and be bastards in a roundabout <laughs> way. <laughs> it's almost like it's a strategy. No, I'm not I'm not having that. I don't think that uh, the the overall goal is to do stuff like this. I think this is a fuck up and it would be considered a fuck up internally at Microsoft. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, cuz it's bad PR, isn't it? People are not going to remember it in about a week's time. That's the thing. Well, they're just copying Apple as well. I mean, this is what Apple generally did, isn't it? Lots of people developing features and side projects that Apple integrates into its operating system or as its own apps, and, you know, their market disappears overnight. I used to work for a company, and one of their mottos was do not compete with your customers. And the idea behind that was that the company that I worked for made a thing. Was it Ubuntu? <laughs> a totally different thing. Um, <laughs> And yeah, so so they they made a platform and people built on top of that platform. And the the theory was that the overall ecosystem was stronger because one person is providing the platform, and and many other people can build on top of that and make their own products and resell it. And that's good for everybody. And I totally believe that business strategy. And Windows has got to be the ultimate platform. Windows Desktop has got to be the ultimate platform on which to build your product. And by Microsoft pissing on people that are trying to build up on their own platform, competing with their customers, they are going to find themselves, well, you know what? They're going to find themselves in no different situation at all because <laughs> nothing will come of it. But it, it's a bit annoying. Okay, this episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. Go to do.co slash LNL and you can get $50 credit with 30 days to use it. DigitalOcean offers VMs or droplets, as they call them, with full root access in data centers all around the world with super fast networking and super fast SSDs. You can use a distro like Ubuntu, Fedora, Debian, CentOS, or FreeBSD, or you can even upload your own custom image. Or you can use their one-click apps like BasicLamp and LampStacks, WordPress, Discourse, or GitLab. 
I've been using DigitalOcean for years now, and in that time, they've added tons of new features, things like managed databases and Kubernetes, object storage, and recently, virtual private cloud, which allows you to create multiple private networks for your account or team. The droplets start from as little as $5 a month, but you can scale them all the way up to 192 gigabytes of RAM with 32 CPU cores and 12 terabytes of storage. But you can add block storage or object storage as you need it. And if you need particularly high amounts of RAM or CPU, they have droplets optimized for that too. So go to do.co slash LNL and get your $50 credit. That's do.co slash LNL. On to a bit of admin then. And first of all, thank you everyone for supporting us on PayPal and Patreon. It's very much appreciated. And remember that for $5 a month or more on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you're a patron, you can ask us anything sensible in the thread that we've got going there. We're going to answer some of those questions this episode, but we may answer some more in a future episode. And just a quick mention that I was on Linux Spotlight with Rocco with the worst webcam in the world. I described this in the Telegram group <laughs> as this. Imagine the worst webcam in the world. Now imagine a worse one. Now prepare yourselves for one that's even worse than that. And that's after Rocco cleaned it up a little bit. Yeah, he put the gamma to 15. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's, it's, you can listen to it as an audio podcast as well. So that's what I suggest. But if you want to see the worst webcam in the world for a laugh, then uh, I'll link to the YouTube video. And I was also on Ubuntu podcast, funnily enough, the, the very podcast where WinPress was talking about the uh, Raspberry Pi thing for Ubuntu 2010. And I will be on it again uh, later this week uh, because, yeah, you come back next week for that one. No, they record two back-to-back. Spoiler alert. What? I know. Are they going to never have me back now? Okay, this episode is sponsored by Entroware. Go to entroware.com. And they are a dedicated Linux computer seller based here in the UK. And they ship their computers with Ubuntu or Ubuntu Mate pre-installed. They have a huge range of laptops from affordable ones, which are ideal for email and browsing, all the way up to real powerhouses with dedicated graphics and even desktop class CPUs in them. Almost everything's configurable with the amount of storage and RAM and what CPUs they have. And if you can't find something that's exactly right for you, then do get in contact with them and they'll do you a custom order. They also have a couple of servers and a range of desktops, including a small form factor machine and a really nice all-in-one. They ship to the UK, Republic of Ireland, France, Germany, Italy, and Spain. And if you do buy one of their machines, then there's a little drop-down at checkout. You can select Late Night Linux and they'll know that we sent you to them. So go to entroware.com for all your Linux computing needs. Right, so finally, let's do some of these Ask Us Anything Sensible questions. So the first one is from Stuart, and he says, Upgrade or reinstall? Would be interested in your preferences and reasons. Upgrade. Since... September the 2nd, 2013, apparently. Wow, that's uh, KDE Neon that you've been upgrading. Well, it didn't start off as because it didn't exist back then. It was a oh, Kubuntu yeah. install. So uh, yeah, when I got my new machine in 2013, and uh, yeah, it is slowly, gradually changed through the years, but it is, yeah, the same install. For me, it's a case of it depends. For my desktop, for my uh, well, laptop uh, that I use um, for you know, productivity, then typically I will do a fresh install on that because over the course of, well, I'll go from 
these days I go from LTS to LTS, but when I was going from interim release to interim release, I would have to download all of the crap that I needed on a day-to-day basis, plus all of the other things that I might have installed and libraries that I might have tested and odd scripts that I might have downloaded. And on my desktop, I just don't want those around anymore all of my work is saved off to the cloud um or github you know uh or google docs those kinds of things and so my laptop is just disposable and the best way of setting it back to a known state is to just blow the whole thing away and start again and that served me very well but on uh, servers for example um i will absolutely do an upgrade because i know what's on there I know exactly what software has been installed and there isn't a whole load of other crap on there. And so doing a, a disk upgrade has generally, touch wood, been very, very reliable. I'm a bit like Will on this. I do both. And for a long time in the office at a magazine, we all kind of reinstalled something every six months or nine months. And that was a really brilliant time. That's a time when I kind of used all the Linux distributions productively every day, day in, day out, and then completely blanked my drive and then started fresh with a new distribution. And it was brilliant doing that. But I guess since then, exactly like Phelim, I had Kubuntu, which turned into KDE Neon. And that that is my main desktop machine that I'm sitting at. And there's a bit of a story with this. The upgrades work, and it always amazes me every time the upgrades work. But trying to get Half-Life Alex to work, I switched from the PPA of the NVIDIA proprietary drivers to try and get the very latest, build the very latest from NVIDIA's site. And it was an absolute nightmare to get working that I wouldn't have had to go through had I done a fresh install. I had OpenCL installed from a couple of years ago. I still had fragments of DKMS drivers installing from some other dev packages I'd installed, you know, before then. And it would have been so much easier had I been working with a fresh install and I didn't have like years of cruft stuck in the uh, library, in the, in the library folders that were getting pulled out each time. So I don't know how long I can go on like this. But also, I've got a .kde configuration file that I've probably brought with me from 2004 or 2005. It's still got like a bookmarks file for Conqueror. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, I think it's, oh, yeah, dear. I think it, the answer is kind of both, but it's, upgrading seems to work surprisingly well. Yeah, I think for me, it depends. I tend to try and upgrade, obviously do a backup first, try and upgrade if things go horribly wrong then just wipe it and start again because it's so quick and easy to do that these days. Well, I suppose it always has been. And um, the thing about being an LTS user of Ubuntu is that you have three years of support. And so I've usually got a new computer by the time it goes out of support or upgraded something and needing to, to do a wipe. But then my old media machine, which I've had for about 10 years now, that has been upgraded um, I recently upgraded to 2004 on that, and um, that all went fine. One of the previous updates, just something went horribly wrong. I think it depends how much shit you've messed around with, really, how many PPAs you've used and other random software, and sometimes it just breaks, but most of the time it works quite well. So I'd say probably more often upgrade, but then occasionally have to nuke and pave, and then obviously if I get a new machine, like I built this desktop machine, under two years ago, and it's only ever had 18.04 in it. I haven't upgraded it yet, but I will do probably when the point release comes out in July. So, 
Yeah, a mixture. I think we're all kind of a bit of a mixture, apart from you, Fernan, then you're just upgrade for life, even though it's just totally balked by now, surely. <laughs> it's a bit like Trigger's Brush. I think pretty much every component on this thing has changed, but uh, yeah, it keeps shifting that data across. All good. I mean, the other advantage you've got as well is the fact that XFC probably doesn't change in between releases, <laughs> so there's nothing to break, really. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's kind of a joke, but it's true. Like, it doesn't change massively, does it? It's not like going from uh, KDE 4 to Plasma 5, which probably broke stuff if you tried to do that upgrade. Well, I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and how much pissing around did you have to do afterwards? I just made the odd dot file had to get deleted here or there, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's when I do new compave, I back up my whole home folder and then just add the dot directories and files sort of bit by bit as I need them so it doesn't break stuff and then end up copying most of it back over. But, um, you know, I just, I'll open up Mumble and go, oh, shit, yeah, I need to copy that. And, oh, Audacity, yeah, I need my settings for that. And just slowly, I should have it all just automated with Ansible or something, but I'm just too lazy to set that up. I've got mine in a private Git repo, all my config files. Have you published your private key by mistake yet? It's not that, it's not that super secret. Yeah, the SSH ones. Are all right. I hope they're all right. <laughs> but there was a funny thing that happened with the NVIDIA drivers. They completely screwed up my computer. I couldn't use my mouse and I couldn't use my keyboard. And I had to use um, KDE Connect. The, uh, the <laughs> And I haven't typed this for ages, but I, in, I had to enable SSH on my desktop. And then and, and when I got SSH enabled through KDE Connect, I typed xinit4. When's the last time you had to do that? Oh wow! <laughs> to rebuild, to rebuild the Nvidia drivers. Yeah, and I thought, God, <laughs> Jesus, nice. it still works. Still works. Okay, so the next one from Casper. I follow the developments of the Pine Time smartwatch. Do you guys use smartwatches? What do you use them for, and what features are missing? I can't think of a possible worse use for a watch <laughs> than shite flashing up on it that I don't need to see. My watch is solar powered and it's made by Casio <laughs> and I hope I never have to change the fucking battery because I had a really expensive watch that you have to have to send off to get the battery changed on and I gave up on that. So no. Yeah, I actually I've got um I've got a Garmin smartwatch. Um I bought it when I was trying to lose weight and do more exercise and I have to say it it really helped. Well, yeah, you're a skinny fucker now. I saw you the other day. Yeah, I used to I, I yeah, I've I've over the last few years i've lost like two and a half stone wow well done yeah i feel a lot better for it and the, the watch really helps i don't want to it, it kind of just helps me to track how active i'm being which is difficult when you work from home sometimes i, I my my I, my propensity is just to sit here in front of the screen 15 hours a day and do absolutely nothing so i need to other than look at the screen i need to find some reason to get out and that's really helped the smartwatch functions i've actually i've actually written my own watch face for it which is pretty cool um there's they provide all the sdks for eclipse and the watch faces themselves can be open source but the sdk isn't um but it also does things like the best kind of it has little mini apps for it and like you can do um the two-factor authentication on it five oh, there's plenty of open source stuff for it even though the platform itself isn't open source so i don't know how intrusive at the end of the day garmin's being but it you know it's helped me become a little bit healthier so that's been good the health aspects, the health monitoring aspects of the smartwatch scare me. I'm a little bit of a 
Uh, I get a little bit freaked out by like health stuff anyway and how the human body works. I've no interest in whatsoever. So with these sort of heart monitors, I just think it's just going to go beep, beep, you're going to die now. And that would be how I'll find out what's going on. And so that freaks me out. I've no interest in that. I saw people paying on the tube with their watches, and I thought that was quite nice, um, just being able to sort of wave your hand over the, the Oyster Reader thing. But other than that, yeah, I, I don't need to know what time it is. I've got a computer and a sundial in the garden for that sort of thing. So, uh, no, I, I don't really have much of a use for one, but apart from the paying thing. And since I'm not going to be going out of my house for about another year, there doesn't seem to be much point. I didn't have a watch for ages either, like from whenever I got a smartphone, like in mid-2000s until I got this, basically. Um, so it has been an interesting transition going back to it. But now I, I, quite, I quite like it. The battery lasts for two weeks, which I think wow. makes all the difference. There's no way I'm plugging something in every night. I thought four years was bad. <laughs> two weeks, for the love of God. Well, you could do it. Well, it doesn't, it doesn't really get in the way. Every, if I had to do it every day, like an Apple Watch, that, or every two days, whatever they are now, I think that would be such a burden. Something else to plug in. The, the, the only way a watch comes off my wrist is when it gets like cut with the jaws of life, when it's grown <laughs> into the skin. <laughs> and really, to be honest, unless it had Lee Ermey constantly bellowing out the side of my wrist, you know, the full metal jacket gunnery sergeant, that would be the only way it would get me moving. <laughs> and, I've also always been a bit of a watch geek. You know, I had like calculator watches in the eighties. I had, um, I had a Palm OS watch. Wow. Oh, Jesus. I had a Seiko watch in the early nineties that came with a keyboard. <laughs> <laughs> so I just, I feel, you know, was it a full QWERTY or what was it? <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was, but oh, you geez. had to take the watch off and they used some kind of wireless radio to trans- transfer the, uh, <laughs> You could type on it and do things like that. I've still got that it. Ridiculous. I've still got it in a drawer with my palm watch. You were that prick at school who had that uh, TV remote watch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whenever you're watching a video, you change the channel. Yeah, I did. I did swap watches with a friend who had a radio watch, which was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and then I had one of those early Casio coloured LCD TVs, which I used to watch in the back of class. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have two smartwatches. One that was given to me, a Pebble, uh, that was given to me by a listener, Paul. And I'm still grateful for that, but um, I stopped using it because the screen got a bit funky. And I also bought myself a Sony Smartwatch 2, I think. Um, and that you could install Asteroid OS on, but it wasn't one of the, the better supported watches. And it would just got completely abandoned by Sony. And then there was various Bluetooth um, vulnerabilities that I read about. And I just thought, mm, probably best not to be wearing this out and about. So for me, the big feature that I'm missing is security updates. And so if this Pine Time smartwatch does pan out, then basic functionality is all I want. I just want notifications on my wrist so I don't have to get my phone out of my pocket or lift it up just to see, is this just some useless notification or do I actually want to reply to it? All right, Leonardo says, given that most of us are working remotely now, it may be interesting to have some tips about audio in Linux, both hardware and software. My main tip would be Pavu control and turn off all of the other devices that you don't want to use. So if you've got a webcam or whatever, just go into that, the last tab on the right, and just turn everything else off and just use um, analog or stereo duplex or whatever. That's my main tip. And then you will know that you are using the right microphone. Um, but that can get a bit tricky if you're trying to use Bluetooth headphones and stuff. 
I'd say Bluetooth, bad, USB, good. Yeah. And also, um, and it's not really um, directly related to sound, but Ethernet, good, Wi-Fi, bad. If you're on a Hangout or a Zoom or whatever it is you do these days and you're on Wi-Fi, regardless of how good your audio equipment is, you're still going to have a really shitty experience on Wi-Fi. So that's what I would suggest. Are you suggesting that I drop out all the time when we're talking on Mumbo? Pardon? <laughs> I found that um, Plasma's uh, K-Mix sound panel is like almost as good as Pavu control now, um, yeah. which is really good. It's got like per app control of which device you're using. Um, and finally, you know, devices dynamically appear and disappear, which is good. Yeah, true. In a, in a bit of a geeky way, I run Jack and Pulse Audio and I use... Um, the Pulse Audio blacklist to disable one of my audio interfaces and then use um, Startup QJack Control at Startup to use that interface. And that works well for stuff that needs Jack. Um, but also Jack will work well with Pulse Audio and Pulse Audio Effects, I think it's called, which is like an external add-on can let you add silly robot voices to your Hangouts. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't care. I point a fan at my microphone while I'm on conference calls just to annoy other people. <laughs> I think my biggest tip is don't fuck with it. Don't mm. be disconnecting things and changing things. Just get your setup working. Get a software setup that works as well. And don't be distro hopping and changing desktop environments and all the rest of it. Just if, if you want something to just work, then get it working and don't touch it. I think that's good advice. If you want to dick around dual boot and has to have one that you know works and one that you can play with. Yeah, or just pick up a cheap ThinkPad. On eBay, for less than 100 quid, you can get a pretty decent ThinkPad that's going to work with any Linux distro. So if you're just looking to tinker and try stuff out, then just do that. Or blag an old laptop or desktop off someone or whatever. There's usually some to be had, as my pile of old laptops will attest. So just make sure you've got a system that is working and stick with it. All right, well, a very quick KDE corner before we get out of here then. Yeah, just a couple of links. Um, there's quite a good one on a catch-up on KD Mobile stuff that was happening. Um, and there's a few videos there to watch. There's some stuff on port and KD apps to Android. And then there's telephony functionality that they were doing uh, using phone sim. And then there's the run the, the phone shell on your desktop if you want to try stuff out. And uh, then the second article is one about getting... NVIDIA, KD, and Wayland all to play nice with each other and uh, a clear up of some of the misconceptions about things and things that, yes, definitely aren't working right. So, yeah, just thought it might be interesting, especially for people with an NVIDIA card who could potentially help out by doing a bit of testing. All right, well, we'll put those links in the show notes. We'd better get out of here. There are still more of those questions and there may be some coming in, so uh, we'll probably do some more on a future episode as well. But for now, we'd better get out of here. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Until then, I've been Joe. I'm Phelan. I'm Graham. And I've been Will. See you later.